Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest author and entertainment professional, Tom Locke. Tom is a walking encyclopedia of musical knowledge about the 50s to the 70s and has compiled a very informative and entertaining book entitled Moments in Time, which contains many interesting and historically significant stories that we'll get into in our discussion. So thanks for joining me today, Tom. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be here, Dan. Well, good to have you. I went through your book, Moments in Time, and I just thought, what a super cool idea. I, I managed to get through the whole thing, cover to cover. It's, uh, it's long, but there's lots of interesting things in there. And what I like about it is there's bite-sized chunks of interesting and engaging stories, song clips, and then the history of rock and roll. It's, so it's engaging, but it's informative and entertaining. Why don't you share with our listeners what it is you did and, and what a cool project this is? Oh, great. And this is sort of a, a, a project, a, a passion project in a sense for me, because music has always been a hobby for me, even though I've been involved in the entertainment industry for many, many years. But I come from the, the, the video side of things in, in the area of post-production, where mm-hmm. Stuff would be shot, be it movies or, or TV series, and we would uh, edit those to make it palatable for the viewer, be it on television or the big screen. And then down the line, uh, you know, I always had uh, this urge, you know, music. I had a music idea I really wanted to pursue. And <laughs> strangely enough, it actually started 35 years ago, if you can believe it. Hmm. Um, driving in my car and uh, enhanced by uh, my fascination with Paul Harvey, one of the great broadcasters in the United States, uh, and his yeah. the rest of the story type presentations where he would lead you in with some very interesting information, break for a commercial bake, break, and then come back at the end with the rest of the story. And I thought, right. what a neat way that would be to tell stories about music, which is uh, a fascination. The story behind some of the songs that we listen to today or have listened to over the years are really quite amazing. So that was the the premise, if you will. It would be like a a drive to work or a drive home from work, and it'd be playing, you know, on on the air. So that was was the driver for me to to start this. Hmm. Fortunately, when the internet came along, and in and in uh, 1997, uh, my good friend Michael Godin with Treasure Island Oldies, uh, I approached him and said, "Hey." Why don't we do a five-minute segment on the show? People are into sound bites today, which they weren't many years ago, and perhaps that might be just a little, you know, break in the program, something a little different. Well, you know, Michael really jumped on it, and I and I thank him for that, and uh, put a lot of trust in me. And for the last twenty plus years, we've been doing a five-minute segment every Sunday on his mm-hmm. show, and it was from the the people on the show and, and others that I knew and said, Tom. You should put some of these in a book because this is legacy material, people that we should know, uh, you know, but the songs we grew up with and songs that, you know, put a smile on our face and make us remember back on on simpler times. And so that's what produced it. And I got to thank, strangely enough, as it may sound, Dan, I got to thank COVID somewhat for this. COVID, Mm. yes, had its challenges, but it also bred an opportunity, an opportunity to for me to spend some time and and hone this book in a format that would be uh, both entertaining and educational. 
So yeah. every story is two pages and then the opportunity with what I call instant gratification for you to be directed to where you can hear that song. So these are excerpts essentially from the show. But what I like about the book and having gone through the whole book is that you can take each chunk. You could, you could read one of them just mm-hmm. randomly. Yep. And it would be interesting. Yep. And it's interesting with the spinoffs you don't think about. Uh, and talking to uh, a lot of friends, DJs, and, you know, and, uh, in the uh, oldies marketplace, if you will, and others, they're saying, this is great, Tom, because I, now I got another reference book, which I was quite honored to hear. Yeah. And then the QR code, you, you hit on that. But so in the book, that's another cool part of it. You can put a QR code on there on your, on your smartphone for those of our listeners who are savvy with that uh, and then listen to the song. Yep. In fact, you can just take your smartphone camera, put it over, click and it goes and you hit a dot and you're, you're, you're good to go. So uh, yeah. What a great idea. So you've kind of brought a lot of stuff together here. And and uh, so let me give my endorsement. And again, we'll send people to mitstories.com and ask that they would order the book and, and uh, just have a read. It was, it's full of really, really interesting information and deeper stuff about some of the songs and some of the stories, which, which we'll get into. You know, we come to the end of 19... 19- 58. Um, Chuck Berry is having his problems, you know, dating a you know, teenager under, under the age of 16, cross-border. Uh, little Richard decides to go back to the ministry and get out of rock and roll, and Elvis gets drafted. Hmm. Also, Top 40 music comes in. We're talking about, no, here's the songs you will play. And so, you know, from 59 up, not to say that there wasn't good songs to, you know, to the British invasion, we were hearing, you know, there was Bobby this, Bobby that, Bobby this, and Bobby then, yeah. Bobby V, you know, Bobby Curtola, all down the line. And it was, you know, the music was fine, but it wasn't the edge that the music had before. Hmm. The British invasion comes along. Groups like the Dave Clark Five, the Beatles, uh, the Animals, they were all, you know, doing stuff and doing covers of records that inspired them, which are all from the fifties, the Chuck Berry, you know, type numbers, if you will, the little Richard yeah. type numbers. Yeah. And all of a sudden the, this edge was accepted with the, you know, the British you know, exposure. So yeah. very fascinating time. So then you talk about the group dynamics and, and some of the groups that got together and uh, some of the great songwriters. I mean, one thing you bring out in here, like it's not always the groups that write the songs, but there were some some great songwriters out there. You talk about Doc Pomus. Pomus is that oh yeah, name? yeah, yeah. Jerome Felder is his real name, but Doc Pomus. Yeah. You know, he was a phenomenal writer. He did a lot of the the writings for the Drifters. Um, yeah. When I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2015, um, meeting with the the president CEO Greg Harris. He had directed me to the hall. He says, I want you to go and look at one thing in particular. He said, given your background. So I went to the area and in the casing in the area, and I talk about this in the book, but not about my experience because it is from my experience, is a wedding invitation. And scrawled on that wedding invitation is is a song. That happened the night that Jerome Felder, known as Doc Palmas, got married. Now, he grew up as a uh, with polio, but he, he performed, he went to clubs, he was quite a talent in his own right, and a great, great writer. His wife, Broadway dancer, <laughs> was out with everybody on the floor, you know, dancing, having a great time. 
and he's sitting there watching. As he's watching, he writes, uh, which came out two years after that, a number one record, Save the Last Dance for Me. Hmm. And that just gives me goosebumps every time I tell that story. Yeah. It, uh, it is so remarkable. So he wrote that on his wedding night yep. while his wife was dancing. Yeah, with yeah on, on an invitation. Wow. That invitation is sitting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Well, that's neat. And of course, that was another song that was recorded by quite a few people, right? Oh, afterwards? Yeah. No question about it. I mean, any good song, I think, is 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 complimented by by being covered. I used to be I used to be somewhat disdain. Oh, I want to hear the original and stuff like that. And I go, yeah. wait a minute, you know, isn't that great? Look at the test of time, you know, of this song moving forward. And listen to this cover version. This person's arrangement is one that's done for them. And so I now I actually admire it. Yeah, well, and of course the songwriter loves it because if the song can be a hit more than once, they can uh, buy a new summer home. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then you you do mention Patsy Cline a little bit, but I always thought she was a bit of an anomaly because she was so big, and then and of course she died young, uh-huh. and then here we are fifty more than fifty years later, people still talk about Patsy Cline all the time. Well, it's, she, it's amazing. She was sort of like the because of her uh, country crossover ability. So she wasn't just a country artist, and I don't put any country artists down because I love country music as well, but she crossed over to the mainstream mm-hmm. in a big big way. Thanks to a lot of people, an unknown writer by the name of Willie Nelson. You may have heard of him. He, yes, he did yeah. that song Crazy. And crazy. boy, that just moved her up to the char- charts. But she was blessed around her with, you know, singer-songwriters in their prime, like Don Gibson and people like that. And they took Patsy in as, as sort of like one of their own, you know. Yeah. Her timing, again, back to timing, it was perfect. And she made the most of it. Tremendously talented artist. Yeah, great voice oh. and great songs. And again, the crossover thing, and so you point in point out in the book about the country crossovers and how much impact they had. Well, it's ironic because my favorite song uh, of all time, and, and it's, it's one of passion, I think the words drive me as well, is done, and it was written by two guys who made Dionne Warwick fam- favorite, famous. Yeah. The song is The Story of My Life by Marty Robbins. Well, Helen David and Burt Backrack wrote that when they were first starting out. And again, Marty Robbins, everybody from, from at least from our era or from, you know, um, from the seventies knows who that is for sure. Yeah. He could do, he could do anything. And he, his arrangements are very unique and he worked with some really top people. What's great about music is that these memories will come back, put a smile on your face, but what you will conjure up will be different than what I conjure up. And that's the beauty of, of music because it's so inter, in, in, universal. The key thing for me is that this music that we grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s has become part of our brand, of who we are and and what we can relate to. And it's actually uh, sometimes when you're you know, excited or something going on, you hear a song and it grounds you because it takes you back to times that you know about. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest singer-songwriter Cindy Church. Cindy's well-known for her time uh, in quartet, as well as a solo artist, and as a member of the esteemed group Lunch at Allen's. So do you just describe yourself as a singer-songwriter? I, I know you play some instruments. I saw you play guitar and you played some percussion. I describe myself as a singer who has had to learn how to write songs, um, and I, for which I'm grateful. But I, when I think of myself... I foremost I think of myself as a singer 
Yeah. Okay. And you play, obviously you play around with the instruments and you, you, you played guitar. Like I saw your, I was at your show, your lunch at Alan's show and you played some guitar there yep. and some percussion as well. Yeah, I do play guitar and, uh, and a little bit of percussion and a little bit of accordion, mainly guitar. That's my main instrument. Yeah. Did you play any of that on your recordings or do you just get the studio cats to, uh, to cover that? No, I play on my recordings now. I didn't used to, but I'd say for the last 15 years I have. Yeah. yeah, I was curious about that because it's it is nice to get the feel that you feel. You want to kind of get it on there, but then a lot of people opt for the studio guys cuz they're so good and they're so polished and they just kind of play it and you go, "Oh, okay." Yeah. And uh sometimes that works really well depending on the right if you have the right guys. Yeah. But uh it's been a more organic process, certainly with Lunch at Allen's. I mean, pretty much done. The, the records are pretty much done the same way it is on stage, except that we, we usually have a, well, we always have a rhythm section. Yeah. I grew up um, in a somewhat musical family. My mother was really musical. Um, she, was a, she was a really good singer, and she used to uh, sing with a couple of, when she was a teenager, she would sing for the local radio station. They had a little trio. And um, hmm. my brother was really musical as well. And so there'd be family who would come over on different weekends. And there was always a fiddle player and a piano player and, and guitar players. Yeah. And so with all that maritime traditional music. So, yeah, it's, I grew up in that, in that for sure. I listen to your voice and, and when I'm listening to your recordings and going through your catalog. And you're obviously schooled. I mean, you sound very precise and your voice is really pure. So did you have some formal voice training or any of that sort of thing? <laughs> no, nope. I just, uh, I just open my mouth and hope what comes out is good. <laughs> so. Yeah. The reason I ask is your, your interval structure is really, really precise and your voice is super pure. Your vibrato, like every, everything about your voice is sounds very controlled and very trained to me. Thank you. I think. <laughs> yeah that was good yeah I, I don't know it, it just uh yeah I, I love to sing and uh you know I've been singing since I was a little kid not professionally but my brother and I uh, we just always sang together and if he was singing lead I would sing harmony it was just instinctive and yeah. uh part of it is just having an ear and mm. um and having done it for so long in a natural way it's the precision that I noticed that that sort of smacks of training, you know, or, or at least a, a strong affinity mm -hmm. towards getting it right. Cause lots of people sing. I mean, we all know the karaoke singers and the people that, you know, grandpa whips out the fiddle and someone else plays a banjo and everybody sings along. I mean, that's one thing, but to sing with that level yeah. of precision on a recording is a whole different world as you know. So. Well, thank you. I enjoy it. I left Nova Scotia in 1977 and I, I moved West like a lot of other Maritimers did at that time. And I was in Edmonton for a year, and then I moved to Vancouver Island. It, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do or whatever. It was just, a, you know, being a young hippie girl out there on the island. Yeah. And um, I had a guitar from the time I was 16, and, and people would kind of coax me into singing and playing publicly at times. And then eventually I got a little bit braver. And uh, I think when I was about 25, I was asked to go on a, on a tour of um, – northern bc with this band and they said you know we want you to come you know to sing background vocals but you, we also want you to learn bass while you're on the road and i said oh. Oh, okay <laughs> so i went and bought went and bought a bass and, and an amp and off i went and uh, 
that kind of got me started. And so I was kind of doing some different countryish gigs down around um, on the lower mainland and whatnot at that time. Okay. And then my partner, who I'd known from Vancouver Island, uh, Nathan Tinkham, who was a member of the Great Western Orchestra, actually, this would have been in about 1982, had been out working with Ian Tyson had played on his recording Old Corrals and Sagebush, which was Ian's first country, or cowboy record. Okay. And so Nathan was back looking for something to do, and then we teamed up, and then we did some work as a duo, and then we heard that Ian was looking for to put a new band together. This would have been 1983. And then I auditioned for Ian, and so I was playing bass and, and singing with Ian for three years. And then, so tell me about the Great Western Orchestra. What was that? How did that all come about? Yeah. It was very much Western oriented. Um, so it was uh, I played bass, Nathan played guitar, and David played mandolin, and it was just all three part harmony stuff and a lot of Sons of the Pioneers stuff and some yeah. original stuff. We played jazz, just whatever we wanted to yeah. play, we played, and that lasted for I think about three years. When the um, Great Western Orchestra broke up, we we just said, well, we'll just let's just keep doing whatever we're doing and you know, maybe I'll do an album or whatever. So we just kind of went from there. <laughs> yeah. And where were you living at that time? Were you still, still, still in Alberta? In Alberta and I stayed in Alberta um, until 1998. And then, then I moved to Toronto in 98. And they, um, okay. Our relationship ended. And well, I mean, we're still friends, but yeah. it, that part of it ended. Yeah. And um, I was in Toronto for, for a long time after that. I'm always curious how you categorize your music, you know, and there's so many sort of labels and names and typically as musicians, we, we don't prefer those. And I know your discography says that you're vast and eclectic, but from a, a marketer's point of view, they don't want to hear vast and eclectic, right? They want to hear, you know, a genre. So I was wondering, like, is it folk? Is it country? Is it Canadiana? Well, certainly in all the years when I, you know, was getting radio airplay and whatnot, I was considered a country singer. And so everything was under that umbrella, and which is, you know, suited me fine. And and I guess I think of myself as a rootsy. I guess it would be Canadian, is the same as the Americana genre, but but definitely folk country. And then you know, I also sing jazz songs and whatever. So again, it it comes down yeah. for myself as just being a singer. And if, if a sing if a song calls to me or something and I and I think I can put my own personal spin on it, I'll try it. I don't think of myself as a jazz singer. I think of a, a singer who's singing a jazz song, if you know what I mean. In nineteen ninety one you did Love on the Range. Was that your first sort of solo album that says I'm here, I'm I'm Cindy Church, I'm gonna do my thing? Yeah. Yeah, it was the first album that I'd done under my name. Yeah. It is so. very country. I mean, almost sort of little Loretta Lynn is what I thought of. I thought, well, that again, the voice is right up front, really pure, really clear, like really centered around your voice and your sort of take. And I sort of thought Rankin family and just just really good. I, I mean, like like your voice comes across really strong and it's right, right front and center in the mix, right? Oh, thanks, well, Dan. That's, yeah. I like that approach. Well, for the singer, I think it's important. You're not you're not trying to sort of bury your voice in the mix of a band, right? It's like like you're doing the the sort of no, you know. Here, I'm a singer. This is what I do. Here's my voice. Lay it out there. Just give it to people. Exactly. I don't want to be part of a texture. I mean, I, I like albums when other people do that. Yeah. But, 
for a certain way for for certain things, but not for what I did. And where did you record that album, and, and who produced it? I recorded it in Edmonton, um, and my partner at the time, Nathan and um, David Hamilton, who plays a lot of the electric guitar on that album, produced it. Okay, it's very country. Yeah, probably the most country of. The three albums, yeah. yeah. And then, because you did the song Rockabilly Heart, and then I was thinking, okay, as soon as you hear the word rockabilly, that's another song category, like another category, genre category, right? So then I was thinking, it's not really a rockabilly song, but Rockabilly Heart, was. it's a nice country song, beautiful, again, nice harmonies. You got a double lead in spots, and the two-string guitar solo is really nice. It's cool. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Well, thank you. And, Thank you. And then some of the other songs, like you did Old Fashioned Love Song, that's almost a jazz tune. That's like country jazz. Well, yeah, which is what Western Swing is, really. I yeah. mean, when you think of Bob Wills and all those those Texas swing bands. Yeah, so there's a lot of mixing of... Yeah, again, it was just like, I like that song, I like that yeah. song. I'm just going to record whatever songs I like. Yeah. And which ones off that album did the best for you? Like, which, which ones were the most uh, sort of well-received, let's say? Um, at that time, there's a song on there that I wrote. I think it was the second song I ever wrote called The Road to Home. Mm -hmm. And that got a lot of airplay in Canada. And Rockabilly Heart was a, a, a good single. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very likable, yeah. very accessible stuff. I mean, you weren't breaking sort of new ground, but you were playing stuff that that's, I don't know, it, I guess it's a bit of a rub there because some, some artists always want to break new ground, but then other artists want to write stuff that sort of sounds familiar already. You hear it and you kind of like it already because it's, there's a familiarity there. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. That Rockably Heart was written by a friend of mine in Alberta. I didn't write that one. It was a good one to record. Yeah. And I think at that time too, because I had a, a record label, you you did put songs on there with the hopes of at least a few of them having some kind of access to radio. I mean, that was part of the part of the thing. I think by the time that I got to my third album, which is my favorite, it yeah, it, the nineteen ninety six. It wasn't about that. It was just yeah, it was just about doing whatever I wanted, and that was the first album where I I felt like I was in control. It's the most representative. Still my fave. And then you did um, Rankin, Church, and Crow. So in 2007, I see that you you did a thing with Raylene Rankin. And mm -hmm. I was wondering what the connection was with the, the Rankin family and maybe the influence. Yeah, that just came about. Um, Susan was offered. Uh, I didn't. I had met Raylene and her sisters at different, you know, business functions, like industry functions and things like that in the past at the Junos okay. and whatnot. But we didn't know each other. Susan was offered a gig in, in Nova Scotia and asked Raylene and then asked me. And then the Rankin Church and Crow and Lunch and Allen's to a certain extent, they, they keep going because of the chemistry. And some, some projects just have a chemistry that mm. it just takes on a life of its own. And that, that was one of those. But Raylene, it was wonderful to get to sing with her. Her voice, talk about pure, just an amazing singer yeah. to sing with and a sweetheart. Dave Wills is uh, perhaps best known and is best known for his time as the lead singer in the iconic Canadian band Stonebolt with radio play and a successful career in the late 70s and early 80s. And after Stonebolt, Dave went on to become a successful manager and producer and to front other projects, including the Dynamics. 
I like to hear the backstory a little bit. You know, people see you up on stage or they, they sing your songs and they sing along with your songs and they don't really know the backstory. And so we're creating kind of a historical record here too and getting some people and especially some of the older, older guys, you know, getting them on on record and getting to talk to them a little bit and just asking them about their musical background. And, and that's kind of where I start, you know, with, with you. I know you've been singing and playing for, for many decades and you're from the Seattle area. Is that right? Originally, yeah. Um, I started out um, in my first bands in like, you know, junior high, high school years, uh, playing teen dances and sock hops and yeah. parties and stuff around. Um, it was an area uh, east of Seattle uh, called Bellevue, Kirkland area. Yeah. And it's, it's a major metropolis now, but back in those days, it was... Uh, not as heavily populated. It was a sort of iconic mid to late sixties um, vibe. There was a lot of, you know, there was, there was always uh, all age teen dances and school dances oh, yeah. and a whole lot of places for uh, young bands and musicians to get, to get a start. And um, of course the Beatles came out and it changed my life as it <laughs> did a lot of other people's. And oh, it's yeah. like, I can do that. That's what I want to be. You mentioned the school dances and the sock hops and everything. I mean, that's kind of foreign to people nowadays, the young kids nowadays, but those were a big deal back then, you know, the, the, the private parties even, but the sock hops and the school dances were, were a big deal. They really were. And of course, that was the center of people's social life. Yeah. Um, that was um, that era's version of social media. Yeah. You know, and, and even in the early years of, of touring, you know, once once we got a bit older and we were touring on the road, uh, both in the, in the band, uh, the last band I was in in Seattle, uh, and then later on in Stonebolt, um, if you wanted to build your fan following, um, you did it by word of mouth, by touring different cities and towns um, in every province and state you could find. Yeah. You'd get to know people and just a few phone calls to key people or maybe even snail mail to some of the most popular yep. girls and they'd spread the word. And, you know, by the time you got to that city three weeks later, you know, people would be standing <laughs> in, in line to get into the, the venue to see you. The two big stations for, for the kids were uh, KJR and KOL yep. and the uh, playlists in the mid sixties, of course, they weren't all genre specific like they are now. So, yep. You know, in any given week in the uh, the top 30 or top 40, you'd have a R&B song, you'd have a rockabilly song, you'd have, um, you know, you have, you have the Beatles, the Stones, the Supremes, Roger Miller, Joe Tex, Wilson Pickett, all on the same playlist. It was awesome. Yeah, it's a good point you make because that, that, that's something, again, that, that you wouldn't realize unless you lived through that. But the, the palette was really ra a wide range, right? Like, And then later on, I guess the record company and the, the music business people sort of carved it up into more finer slots. But back then, we loved Johnny Cash. We loved Led Zeppelin, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's the way it was. And, and you know, and, and, you know, in our first bands, we would... Um, if you look at just recently, uh, I was digging through old boxes of memorabilia at my place up north and um, didn't even realize it. Somehow in a box, there was a bunch of stuff dating back to high school days. And there were like oh. flyers for teen dances and everything. And in amongst this stuff, I actually found a couple of 
song lists and set lists for some of the first oh, cool. bands I was in. Yeah. And ironically enough, some of the songs that were on there that we learned when they first came out are songs that classic rock bands are still playing today. Stuff like Born to be Wild, Mustang Sally, uh, yeah. Brown Eyed Girl, uh, you know, just, yeah. I mean, the most overdone cliche songs. But these were when they were like brand new and just coming out on the radio. And it was just like, you know, um, who's this new band? Led Zeppelin. Who's this yeah. new band? Uh, Steppenwolf. Yeah. It was like cutting edge stuff. It was a magical time. I mean, you, you lived through the time of music magic really from the 60s into the 70s and, and i was i grew up in the 60s and 70s myself and and young people ask me and i say every week there was a song coming out that i just knew i was going to love this song for the rest of my life yeah ab- absolutely the iconic classic eras of when certain groups of musicians got together uh i was chatting with a lady who was uh, lives in Laurel Canyon who used to be uh, a music reporter for Billboard and the Hollywood Reporter oh. Uh, who was a bit older than me and talking about the golden era of the, you know, the, the LA and Laurel Canyon music scene. And I was telling her at the time that um, even when I was starting out in my teens, I I, I thought I had been born a few years too late (laughs) because I wanted to be, I wanted to be in with the older cool kids that were, you know, the, that first wave of people that were happening. Are you familiar with the Pacific Northwest Band's website, pnwbands.com? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I figured you would be. pnwbands.com, and you're on there. So they got your band Lord Charles on there out of Seattle in the early 1970s, and then Shaker was just after that. So Lord Charles, was that? were you in that band? Was that you? Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was kind of a short-lived, um, a short-lived project. And, and the, the irony of that was... We were one of the first tribute bands out there. We did. Oh. Um, uh, we started out doing a Beatles set, and that went over so well that we started doing a bunch of the uh, the first wave of British rock groups. You know, the Stones, uh, Small Faces, uh, the Animals. You know, stuff like that, yeah. and of course Beatles. Uh, and then uh, shortly after that, uh, I got the offer to join uh, Shaker, which which was uh, a great band, sort of an underrated band. We did a lot of sort of uh, influenced by Southern rock and white Mm. R&B. We had an outstanding lady singer named Diane Powell. So Shaker, that was a step up for you to get into that band. Were you guys making a living? Were you a full-time? Absolutely. We were playing clubs six nights a week. And then sometimes we do afternoon shows at colleges and schools and stuff like that. And travel around and uh we were we actually got signed by the same management team that uh had started working with stonebolt okay uh, and that's how i first learned about stonebolt they would be down um uh, the managers would be down in seattle meeting with us and they played us a, a couple of um just uh scratch demos that stonebolt had done uh, the earliest version yeah and uh, at the time, they were shopping Stonebolt's demos uh, okay. to different labels. Yeah. So you were recruited for Stonebolt. Now, I, I read one place it was 73 and another place it was 76. It, it, it was 19, it was early 1976. Uh, I was uh, with the band Shaker at the time. Okay. And um, our managers at the time, um, one of them was Canadian, one was American. 
uh, and they had had Stonebolt uh, working all over the Western U.S. and Canada, yeah. uh, playing clubs, building up a following, and writing, recording demos and shopping them. You know, based on feedback they were getting from from uh, industry people that they loved Ray's voice, but they wanted another lead voice and and some extra writing and stuff like that. That the uh, the the original uh, fellow they had. Um, the recipe wasn't quite right. So okay. long story short, I was feeling kind of stale um, in the Seattle scene. I was right at that age and stage where I was ready for excitement. I wanted to make a move. They offered me the gig with Stonebolt, and I accepted almost like on the spot. It was like a blind date. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I gave two weeks notice to to my band in, in Seattle and um, gave two weeks notice to my roommate, my <laughs> girlfriend, my world at the time yeah. and started packing my bags and uh, joined Stonebolt on the road. You know, it was like wow. um, uh, my last uh, Saturday night with Shaker was at the old um, Aquarius Tavern in Seattle. Next day, uh, one of our managers, uh, you know, rolled up to my place in the, in the old band van and said, okay, here we go. And, wow. uh, and I joined Stonebolt uh, on tour um, in this kind of roadhouse venue in Idaho, met the guys for the first time. And we'd already all agreed that we wanted to work together. Let's do this thing and see if it sticks. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, the wild and crazy guy, Johnny Ferreira. Johnny is a virtuoso sax man and is perhaps best known for his time with Colin James and all the signature parts he contributed to that project. But he's done so much more as well. You're originally from Portugal, and I guess your your family <laughs> yeah. came over here. Yeah, '63. Uh, so I was uh, just just getting into school. So I basically yeah. grew up mo- mostly in um, most of my time was in East Vancouver. There, I went to school there uh, on Hastings Street, and then uh, yeah. McDonald. Then I went over to Templeton High School. Did you have a, like a musical family? Was it a big deal? Music a big <laughs> no. deal for you guys? Uh, no, no, my mom hate, hated music. <laughs> <laughs> my, but my dad, you know, he, he had nine, uh, with him it was nine. So uh, oh, wow. eight brothers and sisters and um, and they're just, you know, pretty, pretty poor. They're in the little town in Portugal. So he he wanted to play music, but uh, there was not, not enough to do that. So, but yeah. when we, when we uh, were living there on... Uh, uh, in East Van, there is um, over on Nanaimo, uh, on Hastings near Nanaimo. There is a yeah. there is a music store. You know, they had the you know come in and learn guitar and, and drums yeah. and, and accordion. Yeah. Well, they the guy knocked was going around uh, knocking on the neighborhood doors, and uh, he said, "Oh, we're having a, a sale or a special or whatever for." Do you want to learn how to play the accordion? And my my dad asked me if I wanted to learn how to play the accordion. I went okay. <laughs> so, you know, so you started on accordion? You yeah, kidding me? Yeah, no. <laughs> so I, I was looking, little eyeballs looking up. Yeah, yeah, I'll play the accordion. So I didn't know what I was getting into, but I learned. And you know, uh, uh, it's is that it was actually a a, a pretty. Uh, a pretty good instrument to learn because I, when I got to high school and, and switched, I, I, I realized how further ahead I was than 99% of the, of the students. Cause I, I had the bass 
clef yeah. already yeah. figured down, uh, figured yeah. out because on the left hand, the accordion is like on the piano kind of left hand, you're dealing with the bass clef. So you you understand yeah. what the bass player does uh, in, yeah. in, in many ways. Um, so I had that. Yeah. I would say the last couple of years in high school, I, uh, I just went to this uh, summer summer thing over in this uh, school uh, in another neighborhood. They had a they had a you know learn learn how to play. So yeah, I, I spent the summer taking lessons on the sax. So when I went back um, to that those last couple of years in high school, I was like now I was a saxophone player, and I yeah, and I, cool. I, I moved pretty quickly because uh, once I got my sound together, I. I, uh, I had I had the music stuff already from the accordion lessons, and then me and another buddy, we were we were so serious about it, we went and took um, theory lessons. If you can believe it, I'd hop on a bus and, and go downtown near where the army army and navy was down on Hastings Street, and I'd yeah. I go to this guy and take a music theory lessons in uh, cool. in high school. So yeah. uh, just to understand what was going on and and a yeah. bit, bit about arranging and voices and instrument stuff. Yeah, so well, good for you. Yeah. yeah, good for you. And then the other thing with you, too, is that you weren't you weren't just doing it for, for fun. You were playing. You were gigging, right? Like, I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, like, we were graduating, and my best buddy there, uh, he's he's like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know you're, you're 18. I mean, it's yeah. like... Uh, uh, well, he says the Cap College has this music program. I go, what do you mean? You can go study music and like do it for a living? He goes, yeah, yeah that's what they say. I went, no way. So we went over there. <laughs> oh, and yeah, we went over there and got it all uh, got it all going. And uh, next thing you know, I was I signed up at Cap College in the music program. Nice. And, and that you know, those couple of years there, they introduced me to uh, musicians. We got bands going around the school and. We yeah. started doing gigs, but it was mostly, you know, people trying to learn jazz. And But a few of us, we kind of kept a core together and we, um, we started, um, well, one of the, one of our guys was Daryl Burgess. I don't know if you remember Daryl yeah, Burgess. I do. Yeah. He had a band going around. Of course, since he's, he's moved to Nashville and been a writer for decades now, but uh, yeah. uh, he wrote that song for Colin, uh, just, just came back, just okay. came back to yeah. say goodbye. That was yeah. Daryl's song. Uh, but but even before I I knew anything who Colin was uh, yeah Daryl and I played in a in a band uh, actually it was it got to be a full time band so I left I left school to just play full time yeah. with that band and uh, but then I ended up uh, after a year or two I ended up going back not to Cap but to continue on through to UBC be, yeah. just to continue it and sort of you know, finish it or whatever. And then Colin came along and then it was like, well, <laughs> do I want to keep going to school yeah. or, but you got to yeah. understand that Colin was, nobody knew who Colin was. This was before he sort of got yeah, signed right. and, and it wasn't like I'm stepping into this famous guy's uh, situation. No, it was not, right. it was not that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what always struck me about you too is that you know, being a sax player, you typically think of you know you're gonna play the blues, you're gonna play some some jazz stuff, maybe right. some big big band stuff. But you're super yeah. diverse. Like like you were playing with DOA and like a punk yeah. band. And <laughs> well, you, it, it's true, man. Like I, I don't say it to brag, but I, I was playing um, every. I was playing like Italian and Portuguese weddings on weekends. Yeah, and then I'd go down to the Yale play with a blues band. And, uh, you know, DOA would hire me to come into the studio and I actually played a, played with them live at the 
Commodore uh, one yeah. time. And yeah, I was playing like in punk rock bands, new wave bands, <laughs> wedding bands, uh, R&B, like it's just music, right? Your enthusiasm has opened a lot of doors for you too, right? I mean, that's you've got that sort of infectious kind of enthusiasm that you just love to do what you do. Well, uh, if you don't have enthusiasm and you're a, a musician, I mean, forget about it, right? I yeah, mean, I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> so you landed on the you landed on the uh, moniker of rock and roll sax player, right? You wanted to play rock and roll, like you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, just um, anything swinging and and blues and. Yeah. which is, is just rock and roll anyways. It's just another form of it. I mean, you know, when I first started hanging out with Colin before he had a band together, I said, so what kind of music do you normally like? And we'd just be sitting in the uh, uh, in a bar, you know, and there would be yeah. some, uh, the band would be playing some jumping stuff. Go, I like this, man, this swinging stuff, you know, this swing. It was just all about swing and, and R&B, but talking about swing, like, not exactly, you know, Benny Goodman swing from the from the thirties, but yeah. but the the swing that became rock and roll. Like if you listen to Louis Jordan in the late forties, I mean, he was there's rock and roll hadn't been you know really invented yet, but but he was kind of that was what rock and roll was going to be, right? And came from yeah. that the jump blues slash swing. Yeah. It's pretty hard to not tap your foot when that stuff's going right. Well, you hooked up with Colin, and then and you became part of his signature sound, right? And that was in the mid mid eighties till yeah. I guess till the late nineties, right? And you yeah, did blues exactly. shows, and you yeah. did a little big band. Yeah, you know uh, uh, that that's that's exactly it. But you know, when Colin first got the band together, uh, you know, we had Rick Hopkins on the Hammond organ uh, and piano, but I also had a a synth setup on on stage because I oh. when I wasn't playing sax, I would. I would double stuff on keyboards because oh, cool. yeah, we were doing um, mostly the blues rock and stuff, but uh, you know, one day we were playing this uh, gig in, in Regina and the, 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 the stage was so small that there wasn't room to put my keyboards on. Like oh. that's how small it was. So uh, I just told the, our, our, our guy I says, yeah, just don't, don't set it up. So that left me in a, in a, in a weird situation where I had to stand there the whole night with Colin, like right beside him because yeah. was, we were like nearly touching, you know, arm in arm because the stage was so small. I had to kind of be a sax player a hundred percent of the time where if I did, mm. if, the, if the song came up where I, I wouldn't have any sax thing going, I would just, you know, play the keyboard, do something. But this particular night I had to be a saxophone player only and then, and then it worked out so well that then I, I never did set that synth back up again. I watched some of your videos, like the five long years one's cool and stuff. Mm. And of course that, that's a well-known worldwide sax part and stuff. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that's cool. Cause you you got to be on much music, I guess, in the, in the mm -hmm. mid eighties and doing your thing. And I was going to ask you about that sax part. Was that, there's lots of reverb and, and delay on that. Did you double that part? Is that no, actually? We wrote that when I had the, the, the synth uh, on stage still and in the, in the, rec in the practice room and, and uh, I go, oh, I got a cool little intro line. And I just went with those kind of belly lines that you'd hear in the eighties. I went, doo -doo -doo. Oh, <laughs> doo -doo -doo. oh, cool! I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even write that on the sax. I, I just wrote it on the synth because. Oh, funny! But, but then I, I, it just got transposed to the sax. And then uh, Bob Rock, the producer, said, "Okay, uh, Colin's done his vocal. I want you to just play your brains out throughout the entire song, like it's." 
There's not even a vocal in it. This is your record. It's a saxophone record. You're blowing from beginning to end. Don't yeah. stop for anything. Play all the licks <laughs> you want. He just wanted me to do overkill. So I just, I had that line and I, I kept repeating it. Uh, you know, I still love you. And then I go, but that, 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 that. And I was just kind of repeating. Yeah. And then I only did that once, but, but Bob really liked it. So he started putting it everywhere in the song. Yeah. And that's kind of how my sax, my sax part uh, yeah. Well, that must have been exciting for you. I mean, you, you're a young guy. You learned how to play accordion, saxophone. Next thing mm-hmm. you know, you're you're on much music. You're doing you're right. recording with Bob Rock, and you're you're, yeah. you're doing your thing, right? And what was the biggest song and the most popular song on Much Music? Would have been Five Long Years, I guess. Hey, you did you oh. did a bunch of other ones too, right? Yeah. Well, uh, that album, that first album, had a Five Long Years Voodoo thing and Why July. So Why yeah. July, I got a solo into in there. Yeah, in really there. good. Love Those it. Those three, and then they had a. Chicks and Cars, you know, that album uh, spawned quite a few things for Colin and that. Yeah. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.